We the people. We the people. We the people of the United States. We the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. To ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. In the summer of 1787, 55 men would gather in Philadelphia. They were tasked with fixing the government of the United States of America. Over the course of four months, they would debate, argue, refine and prepare the first document of its kind in the history of mankind, an attempt to prove that men can rule themselves by law. Over the next three years, the 13 United States would debate the ratification. This is the story of those men and of those times. It is a look at the ideas, the concepts, the debates, and the history of the Constitution of the United States. This is Constitution Thursday. It is worthy of remark that not only the first, but every succeeding Congress, as well as the late Convention, have invariably joined with the people, in thinking that the prosperity of America depended on its union. To preserve and perpetuate it was the great object of the people in forming the Convention, and it is also the great object of the plan which the Convention has advised them to adopt. I sincerely wish that it may be as clearly foreseen by every good citizen, that whenever the dissolution of the Union arrives, America will have reason to exclaim, in the words of the poet, farewell. A long farewell to all my greatness. By the third act of Shakespeare's Henry VIII, his final play, it's clear to everyone that Cardinal Wolsey, who hitherto has been both loyal and trusted advisor to King Henry VIII, has failed in his attempt to straddle a very fine line and maintain a union between church and state, specifically keeping England within the titular authority of the Pope back in Rome. Wolsey has tried very hard to meet the best interests of both sides, the Pope, the Papacy, and King Henry, but over the Queen, who has not given him a child, the nation, the union between the church and the state is going to rip apart. And it's Wolsey's attempts to maintain that union that eventually lead to his downfall because there are those who will accuse him of backstabbing the king with regards to the queen. And he realizes in the third act that he has, he has failed. And being summoned before the king, he, he knows that he is about to be uh, done away with, banished. He was not, uh, as it turned out, killed. Uh, but he was banished and he never again held any authority within the government of either England or really the church uh, as having been seen as a failure. And he utters those words that Publius quotes in the second 
letter to the Federalists, the second Federalist letter, farewell, a long farewell to all my greatness. This is the state of man. Today he puts forth the tender leaves of hope, tomorrow blossoms and bears his blushing honors thick upon him. The third day comes a frost, a killing frost. And when he thinks good easy man, full, surely his greatness a ripening, nips his root, and then he falls as I do. It's a, it's, it's a sad scene, it really is. And it's a well-known scene, of course, in Shakespeare, to which Publius appeals as he writes in the Second Federalist Letters, he closes the Second Federalist Letter, he appeals to that in, in the idea that if America should ever fail to unite, as uh, church and state had under Henry VIII, that would be our cry, farewell, farewell to all of our glory farewell to all of our greatness. And having described how America has become great in this letter, this, this letter, uh, the second Federalist letter, which was released uh, nigh on this week uh, in 1787 in response to some of the uh, criticisms and some of the other elements that, that, that go into the anti-Federalist argument, it's, it's, an inc- it's, it's a fantastic letter in that it describes how the people were literally made for this land and how wonderful America is and the ideas of America and the, the directions that America can, can go and the, what the future can hold. And yet it is also filled with warning that we must have union and that if we don't have union, the glory, the greatness, the wonder that is America, the one connected people a people descended from the same ancestors, speaking the same language, professing the same religion, for the most part, attached to the same principles of government, very similar in their manners and customs, and who by their joint councils, arms, and efforts fighting side by side throughout a long and bloody war have notably established general liberty and independence will come to an end. This is not an unusual argument, particularly in the 1780s. You can go all the way back to the 1760s and the idea that Benjamin Franklin and others came up with of join or die. You've seen the the cartoon. It's generally credited as being a Revolutionary War cartoon, but it's not. It's actually a pre-Revolutionary War cartoon uh, talking about the fact that it's the snake divided up into the 13 colonies. And it says join or die. We must be united or we will fail in our efforts. From the earliest days of the Stamp Acts, the Intolerable Acts, all the way down to the proposed Constitution, it has been generally agreed and understood that whatever we do as a nation, we must do together. And that if we don't do it together, our greatness will come to an end. You know, it's interesting because today politicians will, it doesn't really matter what party they belong to, they will stand up and say something similar to this. We all want the same thing. We just disagree as how to get there. And somehow or another when we hear that, we're, we're taken aback because we, if we stop to think about it, we, we realize, yeah, we probably all do want the same things. We all want freedom of speech, freedom of religion. We all want uh, a good government. We all want our tax dollars to quit being wasted. But you're right. We do disagree on how to go best about doing that. And somehow we think this is some sort of new argument. 
some new discussion, and it really isn't. The first six letters that form the Federalist Papers outline the Federalist position for why union is necessary. Without union, our greatness will disappear. Without union, this country will disappear. Without union, we're going. We, we might, we might see one, two, three separate nations, you know, forming on a on a regional basis, as Madison uh, had suspected during the convention. Or we might see thirteen. Who knows? We might see fourteen. We might see England come back, taking over uh, portions of it that it can now conquer because there's no there's no further resistance. Spain might come in on the west and in the south. France, who we love dearly but is proving to be somewhat of a problematic ally, might, might demand things that we can't meet. Delaware might go its own way, as Gunning Bedford once said during the convention, and God only knows what Rhode Island is going to do. But we do know this. All of these problems, all of these issues that we need to solve as a nation will not be solved if we dissolve. We know that for a fact. And this is, this is probably the, the strongest argument in favor of the Constitution is that it, it unionizes America. Now you can say the Articles of Confederation did as well, and to a degree they did. But they were not being successful. And anybody that is, is intellectually honest about it recognizes this. Even the Anti-Federalists recognize the fact that the, Art the Articles of Confederation were not working. But their belief, and this is where it gets uh, into the philosophy of this, their belief was not that the design of the Articles of Confederation was bad. That the, the idea of the Confederation hearkening back to the Greco-Roman republics was proper without ever considering the history of what has happened to every confederation in history. Every single one, including the one of the southern states from 1861 to 1865. Every confederation collapses on the same rocks, which is that it's a confederation and it has no central governmental power to command the citizen in a way that benefits the confederacy. It, it can't do it. And so it always dissolves. It either gets defeated in a war or it transforms itself into a, a dictatorship of sorts where the central government essentially just takes over. Usually with uh, bad results for liberty and, and property rights. The Anti-Federalists, for some reason, don't ever consider that. But they argue vociferously that the design of the Confederation, the design of the Articles of Confederation, is fine. The problem that they point out quite significantly, and this is intriguing to me, the problem they have decided is not the design. It's that the people aren't living up to that design. The people of the United States are not virtuous. They are not taking part in their government. They aren't doing the things that need to be done in order to maintain the Confederacy as, as, as a republic. Now, this is an intriguing argument if you think about it, because in a way, it's the same argument that I would make today about our democracy, our republic as it is, is that the, the population isn't virtuous. We had an election here uh, locally last week, this week, <laughs> where turnout was somewhere around 13%. You can't run a republic on that type of, uh, of involvement. It can't be done. 
not long term. So the same argument that the anti-federalists are making, that the people aren't living up to their part, has some merit. The problem is, as the federalists are going to point out repeatedly, the problem is that when you have the type of republic that the anti-federalists are leaning toward, which is a, a, a Greco-Roman type republic, a classical republicanism, if you will, classical republics tend to be aristocratic aristocratic in nature. That is, the rich, the wealthy, uh, the powerful tend to concentrate the power at the expense of, obviously, the, the plebs, the, the, the ordinary people. And we see this happening. We saw it happen in Massachusetts, which, which led to Shays' Rebellion. We've let it. We've seen it happen in other places. We, Rhode Island. Uh, we we haven't talked much about Rhode Island yet because we're going to do uh, some serious some serious looking at Rhode Island. In Rhode Island, the the laws have been changed by the aristocratic power that run the Republic of Rhode Island. The laws have been changed so that there is not equal representation between. Uh, what you would call rural areas and and urban areas of Rhode Island. Now I realize it's not like it is today, where you have you know a city of seven million people and a county of five hundred thousand. But you have to understand that the power elite in Rhode Island lived in the countryside. They didn't live in the city. They're not going in there. And the power was concentrated where the least population was. And the laws had been changed so that if you didn't have property, you couldn't vote. It was made very difficult to gain property. And while lip service was paid to the idea of republicanism and, and freedom and liberty, legally, the nation was basically falling into this trap of using the aristocratic nature of a, a republican-type government where just a few people shared the power and the the consent of the governed the people was essentially ignored it was essentially put aside there, there were great th words were made great speeches were made but it wasn't working that way montesquieu comes along and we, we've talked about montesquieu on my regular show but um montesquieu the great french enlightenment philosopher comes along and he redefines classical republicanism in the, in the 1750s and 60s, he redefines this. And this is more the ideal that the framers, of course, will have in mind and that the more, I guess, enlightened American would accept as the definition of classical republicanism. And, and indeed, today, this is the definition that we would accept. I think you'll find that functionally it probably doesn't work this way, and, and certainly we could talk about that. But from a definition standpoint, Montesquieu redefined the true virtues of the classical republican uh, as more egalitarian. In other words, the idea that every man, all men, are created equal and should be treated as, as equals, and that all men should have an equal opportunity to have involvement in this. Now, a, a republican, of course, means that you have a small number of people in government, but if you have it more egalitarian, the democracy is small enough so that the people can assemble and so that those who stand for election are familiar to the people, resemble the people, remain under the close scrutiny of the people. True democracy, true republicanism, requires an intense public spirit, which Montague defined as virtue, an intense concern and you know, involvement in things. And 
that all citizens needed to conform to the ethos of egalitarian communal civic virtue. In his view, that meant establishing a single religion, but it wasn't the focal point of what he was driving at, which was that everyone needed to be on the same page. We needed to have union in order to move forward. This classical Republican ideals are found in this argument, particularly between the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists. The Federalists lean more towards the French Enlightenment ideal of egalitarian, everybody's equal, and which we're going to see in just a couple of years in the French Revolution where uh, that is taken to its uh, absurd end, where literally everybody is equal, and that you, you'll see the problems that taking that too far become. And the anti-federalist position, which is that we have a republic, but the republic should be run by a very small, elite, aristocratic group of, of men who you know, are, are better than everyone else for all practical purposes. The, the anti-federalists speak of the chief goal of government as securing rights and liberties in an individual and libertarian sense. It's very individualistic. The anti-federalists want a big nation, they want a, but they want that classic republic, which can then become a commercial power, which of course then benefits the aristoc aristocratic folks more than, uh, more than the, the general public. Anti-federalists' biggest difference, I guess, between them and federalism is that they tend to see politics as less a positive good and more a necessary evil required to protect the personal liberty. Uh, the interesting thing about them, however, is that like most positions throughout history, they're unclassical. They, they get away from what they call classical republicanism in the degree to which they are apt to see government and participation in politics as intrinsically corrupt uh, because humans are by nature prone to use power to seek more power. So the Federalists, and, and this is the Anti-Federalists, sorry, uh, that, that's a mouthful from my notes for saying that... Uh, the, the anti-federalists see government as intrinsically evil, as intrinsically too large, as always, always trying to suppress the rights of the people. Now again, I, I have a, a white paper that I'm working on, which is a theory, that the anti-federalist of today is the Libertarian Party. And you'll see a lot of similarities between what the Libertarian Party of today and the Federalist Party of seven, anti-federalists of 1787 through 88 uh, believe, which again, we all kind of see government as an evil. I think we'd all agree that it's a necessary evil. Even those of us that are, are more conservative would say there has to be some level of government uh, because there has to be. Without it, you have anarchy. And how do you maintain uh, liberty and property rights and those sorts of things without some means to command the citizen to observe those things? This is the problem with the Confederacy. A confederacy cannot command its citizens to respect other people's rights. It, it can't do it. It can't tax them. It can't uh, raise the funds for defense. It can't do those things. The anti-federalists oppose the Constitution because they see it as threatening the individual rights and freedoms by excessively centralizing government and moving government too far from the people. What's needed instead, they believe, is localized, more classical Republicans, more participatory democracies. In other words, we need more people involved with what we are doing. And of course, 
that's the same argument I would make today. We need, in order to make this work, we have to have people involved. And of course, the Federalists understand this. This goes back to the Franklin comment, you know, what kind of governor have you given us, Mr. Franklin? A, a, a republic, madam, if you can keep it. And if you think about that, uh, the woman in question who asked that would have believed already that it was a republic. But now he's telling her it's more on you than, than anything else. The anti-federalists had some, some other flaws. Uh, if you were to look at them from a religious standpoint, uh, they were, and, I, and I, I don't mean this in a negative light, but they were staunchly Christian. They, they were okay with religious diversity as long as they were Christian uh, denominations. They weren't real accepting of outside religions because they felt like outside religions uh, would influence the, the course of the nation in a direction that would, that would be historically based uh, unsound. England, of course, had shed its its Roman Catholicism to, to the most degree under Henry VIII and plotted its own course from that point forward. And within the context of religion, the Anti-Federalists were afraid that if particularly <coughs> the Pope or some other religion were to gain a good foothold, that which, which would be allowed under the new Constitution, that the direction of the nation could be irrevocably changed. The interesting arguments here to me are not so much religious as they are philosophical and yet at the same time there there's something here that we can't miss and as you read through the first six Federalist Papers and I and I hope that you are reading those along I have uh, the letters from the federal farmer in hard copy I bought it last week on uh, Amazon for a penny. Got it right here. It's a beautiful little book, and I've ordered some other books. But you can read all the anti-federalist positions online as well, uh, and we'll link uh, the appropriate ones for this week up on the on the page. But what you see here are two philosophies of government. One very limited, very small, very aristocratic. One a little bit larger. One, it's egalitarian, it's, uh, you know, more open and yet larger at the same time. These two philosophies of government, however, are approaching the same exact problem, which is that how do we maintain the union, which we all agree has to be maintained. It must be maintained. We must have union, even if having that union means that for the time being, we have to accept the evil of slavery. In point of fact, in less than 80 years, we're going to have that exact fight as to whether or not we should have union with slavery or, or, or disunion with slavery or union without it. We're going to have exactly that argument in a little bit close 73, 74 years from now. But for the moment, we understand that we must have union. And I think that even today, we understand that. Intrinsically, we understand that there's no way any one state could just go off on its own. I know Texas talks about it. Um, I know that, uh, you know, California is talking about splitting into six states. And uh, there's other folks that have talked about seceding from the union. And, and that's where any state goes every time they feel like they're being picked on. Oh, we'll just secede. You will not be successful if you do. You can't be. Why? Because as the writer of the Federalist Papers argues, we're one people made for this land. 
doesn't matter what race, religion, color, creed, sex, whatever you want. We're all here because we're Americans. And this land was made for you and me, to borrow a phrase. And there's no way that you will be successful without the rest of us. I think there's a passage in the New Testament somewhere about, you know, my big toe should say, and I'm not a toe, you know, how does the body react? It's the same ideal. And, and this is, it brings me to what I want to leave you with today, which is that I have long said that the study of the Constitution is similar to the study of, of Scripture. Now, I, you know, of course, I look at the Talmud and uh, the Torah study and those sorts of things, whatever you want to look at, Bible study, whatever. One of the big problems that I had in seminary was that we were compelled to use a form of study called inductive study, inductive Bible study. There's actually an inductive study Bible out there if you, if you happen to have one. The problem is inductive reasoning is useful at times, but it's generally flawed in the sense that in inductive reasoning, you start with a conclusion and you look for evidence to support that. So it becomes the ultimate in confirmation bias. You ignore everything that doesn't prove your point and only, you only look at those things to do. Sherlock Holmes would have had a fit with this. Of course, he's the, 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 the king of deductive, deductive reasoning in which you start by gathering facts and then you twist your theories to fit the facts, not the other way around. Now, I would submit to you that if we were to study the Constitution in more of a deductive manner, we might find our position changed. I can tell you mine have. I, I guarantee you mine have. I'm a conservative talk show host. I realize I'm doing a podcast now, but that's my choice. How many times during my nine years on the air did I say, oh, the framers said this, the founding fathers' vision was this. The, we've got to get back to the original vision of the founding fathers. Only to discover that we went, when we went and actually looked at what that vision was, and we just did this, we, we did a five-month course every week minus one week that I missed, of, of what happened at the Constitutional Convention, what the arguments were, what the debates were, who was arguing what. And what we find is that these framers that we venerate did not necessarily have the induced opinion that we have of them. And when we use deductive reasoning, we find that they saw things differently than perhaps we ascribe to them. Does that change our passions? It shouldn't. Does it change our understandings? Absolutely, it must. You cannot say to me, well, I'm a Tenth Amendment guy, if you understand that James Madison, the guy who wrote the Tenth Amendment, wanted to do away with the states entirely. And then tell me, I want to get back to the vision of the framers. The, the first Ten Amendments, the Bill of Rights, were written by people who didn't like the Constitution. Do you understand that? When, when that light bulb goes on in your head, when you understand that the Bill of Rights was written by people who didn't like the Constitution, it changes how you look at it. It doesn't mean it's any less precious to me, but it changes my understanding of how that came to be. And when that understanding changes, it, it, it opens up a fresh perspective of how you look at things. And you begin to understand that the Anti-Federalists Flawed though their vision may be, and I, and, I, and I disagree intensely with today's libertarians. I, I really do. There's some reasons why. Maybe we'll get into those on my show someday. But the reason I disagree with today's libertarian harkens back in some ways to the Federalist position. 
And this is the point I want to take. I want you to take this point with you today. If you get nothing else out of what I've said today in the second Federalist letter, please take this. Most of you are Christian, and I get that. And in the book of Acts, there's a story of, of, of a group of people to whom Paul goes to speak. And he says to them what he has to say. And, and there's a phrase that says, and they studied the scriptures to find these things were, were, were true or not. The scriptures at the time of the book of Acts was simply the Torah. That's all there was. Well, the, the Tanakh was there. But we're talking about the Torah. That's it. That's what they studied. How many of us today could argue with the Libertarian Party of today, which I submit to you is the Anti-Federalist Party of the 1780s. How many of you could argue today with them about why the Constitution is the better way to go? Now, I realize that the Constitution is, is off the rails, and I, and I get that, but let's assume for, this, for the moment that it's still in its purest form. How many of you could argue with them today from what you know of classical Republicanism and what the framers said and why they did the way they did and what they said? about why the Constitution is better than the Confederacy. And if you can't argue that, you need to study some more because you should be able to. You should be able to, as the Federalist paper said, understand that this is all about union and that if we divide, farewell, farewell to all our greatness. Constitution Thursday is a feature segment on Plausibly Live, the official podcast of The Dave Bowman Show, a Slippery Fish Entertainment production for the Podcast 99 Network, copyright MMXV, all rights reserved. For more information, log on to constitutionthursday.com.